Hey, good morning, church family. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, like Kyle said, we're walking through every book of the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, and uh, we've come to the book of Obadiah. So if you have a Bible or you have it on your phone, there's some under the seats, would you go ahead and turn to the book of Obadiah? Or more likely for most of you, can you turn to the table of contents and figure out where in the world is Obadiah? Blink and you miss it. No, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament, but I think it will be good. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to watch a short introduction video, and we'll dive right in. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for being a God who speaks to us. When we open the Bible, we are expectant that you want to speak to us, even when we open a book that we're not familiar with, like Obadiah. I pray this morning that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts so that we can see more and more of Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The book of Obadiah was written by the prophet Obadiah sometime between 848 and 840 BC. Obadiah gives prophecy to the nation of Edom, a neighboring country to Israel. The relationship between Judah and Edom dates back to Isaac's sons, Jacob, whose family became the nation of Israel, and Esau, whose people formed Edom. Historically, the nation of Edom was dominated by the kingdoms of Israel. But when the Babylonian army invades and conquers Jerusalem, Edom takes advantage of Judah's weaknesses, plundering cities and abusing refugees that survived. Speaking on God's behalf, Obadiah holds Edom accountable for their sin and vows that their nation will fall just as Judah fell. Through Obadiah's prophecies, God uses the nation of Edom as an example for the judgment that will come to all prideful nations. One day, God will deal with sin in its entirety and make way for ultimate restoration of his world. It's an interesting phenomenon throughout global history that often the nations and the people groups that are right next to each other are also mortal enemies. Have you ever noticed that before? I mean, we don't really have this in America. We make jokes about Canadians, but it's not the same as like the relationship between North and South Korea or India and Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and Iran. All over the world and all throughout history, there is often a fierce cultural and generational rivalry between neighbors so that it can get to the point, well, what are we fighting about? I don't know, it was so far in the past we just forget. The comedians Key and Peele have a sketch about a Macedonian cafe that hates the Albanian cafe right across the street, even though they serve exactly the same food. And these tribalism conflicts happen on a smaller scale, too. So to anyone else in the world, what's the difference between Minnesota and Wisconsin? Not much at all. But if you're from those places, you would be, take deep offense at being mistaken for, we're very different than those people over there. Henri Tajfel uh, was a Polish social psychologist who studied human prejudice. And notice that he was Polish in the 20th century. Uh, Tajfel was a prisoner of war in a Nazi prison during World War II, so it's not surprising that he was very interested in studying why human beings treat other people differently or poorly. And Tajfel concluded that humans instinctively identify in-groups and out-groups, even when the differences between those groups are trivial or completely arbitrary. 
You see it on the playground as well. I'm not on that team. I'm on this team, and that defines my identity. It's, it's just this tragic, innate instinct in human beings to demonize people who are mostly like us, but who are maybe just a little bit different. And this is the situation between the two ancient nations of Israel and Edom. So as the video mentioned, Israel was descended from the patriarch Jacob. Edom was descended from his brother Esau. So it's very confusing that Edom and Esau are both four-letter words that start with E, but they mean uh, the people descended from Esau are the Edomites. And from the very moment of the birth of Jacob and Esau, these brothers, there was tension Before they were born, while they were in the womb, Rebekah noticed these twins fighting each other. And the Lord said to her in Genesis 25, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And of course, if you know the story from Genesis, it does not go well. Jacob deceives Esau to receive the family inheritance. Esau threatens to kill his brother, and it devolves from there. It's a huge mess. And it continues down in their descendants, and it turns into this kind of national sibling rivalry. And the worst moment in their relationship was when Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile. The Edomites, while this happening, were cheering for their neighbor's destruction. They plundered their cities. They even took advantage of refugees that were passing by. It was not the Babylonians, but it was the Edomites who were blamed for burning down the temple in Jerusalem. So Edom was kicking Israel while they were down, and it was even worse because these evils were not done by some big bad empire far away. It was done by our brothers, the people who we're supposed to trust. And so God's people in Israel are crying out for justice, and that's where we get the book of Obadiah. Like Kyle said, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses. And at first glance, it seems like one of the least relevant parts of the Bible for people today. I mean, Edom doesn't exist anymore as a nation. I highly doubt there's anyone here who identifies. Do we have any Edomites in the house? If so, I'd really love to meet you. It'd be fascinating. What use could it be for us to learn about this ancient geopolitical conflict? But as we'll see, this short little book has a lot in there, and it holds rich truths that are relevant for us as everyday people. It teaches us not only about human relationships, but also about the character of God. One of my seminary professors said, I can summarize the whole book of Obadiah in three words. Edom is toast. And that's just stuck with me. I think it's a good summary of the book. And so I've adapted it with respect to Dr. Collins slightly. So the big idea of Obadiah is this. Edom is toast for now. Obadiah can be divided into two different sections. Verses 1 to 14 are the crime and punishment of Edom. Verses 15 to 21 are the crime and salvation of all nations. And those Titles should become more clear as we walk through the book. So let's actually dive into Obadiah. We're going to cover the whole book. So by the end of this morning, you're going to be a master of the book of Obadiah. You just watch. All right, so verse 1, this is the crime and punishment of Edom. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And remember, that's the descendants of Esau. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. 
Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. All right, so it's clear that God is opposing Edom and he's pronouncing judgment on them, which leads us to ask, okay, what did they do that was so wrong? Verse three, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So here we get the first accusation from God against Edom. They were arrogant. But he uses a play on words here that really only makes sense if you understand the geography of the Holy Land. So I've put up on the screen a topographical map of that region of the Holy Land. There's Israel on the left side of the Jordan River. Edom is on the right side. And as you go eastward from the southern end of Israel, you enter rocky, craggy hills and mountainous terrain. The average elevation there is 4,000 feet above sea level. Uh, it's where Petra is located, if you recall from Indiana Jones. Yeah. Uh, that's where the Edomites lived, in those hills, in those mountains. And then Obadiah uses the landscape itself as a metaphor for their pride. Did you see that in verse 3? The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So the fact that Edom was physically elevated above Israel reflects their internal arrogance and superiority. It, it led to feeling untouchable, unbreakable. It was a sort of national assumption of dominance. It's honestly a bit like Duluth on top of the hill, literally and metaphorically looking down on superior, which unfortunately does happen. That's not good. But in verse 4, the Lord promises to bring down the arrogant. Like it says in Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So the first accusation is an arrogance that led to feeling impervious. Edom was literally feeling high and mighty. All right, let's read on in verse five. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Now, one of the interesting features about biblical prophecy is that the writers often do not care about time. What I mean is that the prophets are looking at the whole story of God's people, past, present, and future, and they're applying it to their present day. So in our verses right here, Obadiah speaks about the future as though it has already happened to show just how certain that future is. So you'll read interjections like, oh, how you have been destroyed, how Esau has been pillaged, but he's speaking about the future. And the future that's being predicted here is that what Edom did to Israel, Israel will happen to them as well. So we ask, what did they do to Israel? Well, when Israel was taken into exile by the Babylonians, the Edomites jumped into the plundering of the cities so that there was absolutely nothing left. I mean, the fields were burned, they were laid bare, people were driven out of their homes. 
It's kind of like when a natural disaster happens, a hurricane or a flood, and you get a lot of people who want to jump in and help, but then you get some as well who see this as an opportunity to loot, to profit off of that disaster. So the result of Edom's pride and self-exaltation is that they took advantage of those they thought were beneath them, those they thought were weak. They saw an opportunity there. And God promises to hold them accountable for those evil actions. This is what he says in verses 8 to 14. Let me read it. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress." So we get a description there of some of the terrible, awful things that the Edomites did to the exiles. If it wasn't enough that Edom lived with this sense of pride and superiority, if it wasn't enough that they joined in the sacking and pillaging of Israel, they also did so with gleeful gloating. They delighted in the misery of others. There is just a unique kind of evil when you can look at the suffering of another human being and smile. I took German in high school. One of the things I love about German is that the Germans have a word for everything. And schadenfreude fits the idea here. It's the joy or satisfaction derived from the troubles, failures, or humiliation of others. See, even God, in stories of judgment like the flood in Genesis, always punishes evil with grief. He never does so with a smile. To rejoice over someone's pain reveals a heart that is callous and cruel. And Obadiah points out that Edom did these things and felt this way toward their brothers, their relatives, those who should have been the recipients of love and generosity in their time of need instead were given violence and smug satisfaction. And so God concludes, you've done these awful things and you're proud of it, and I will bring justice for this evil. Now let me pause here and point out one warning for us from the book of Obadiah. It's clear that this is the crime and punishment of ancient Edom, which doesn't exist anymore, but what does it mean for us now? Here's the principle. Arrogance leads to violence, but humility leads to peace. There are likely not many among us now who have the desire to plunder a city or take advantage of the poor, but notice that for Edom, those actions originated from a strong sense of superiority, a a haughtiness, and a pride that said, ah, you're not just different, I am better than you, and that gives me license to treat you as lesser. It's a sort of narcissistic 
exceptionalism. I'm so special that I can do what I want, really. The rules don't apply to me. The point is that pride is not only thinking of yourself too highly, it's also thinking of others too lowly, not seeing their value or dignity as fellow human beings. Throughout history, the worst evils and atrocities have started with diminishing the dignity of the other, labeling them as less than human. I have a picture here. During the Civil Rights Movement, African Americans marched with signs that said, I am a man. That should have been obvious. It should be obvious today. But even if you look at headlines, that's not the case. The more you dehumanize someone, the easier it is to ignore their suffering or even to cause them suffering. And Obadiah shows us how short a hop it can be from I'm better than you to I hate you, to I can treat you however I want. But God holds people accountable, not only for the actions that they do to others, but also for the inward heart motivation and attitude that led to those actions. So what I want us to see this morning is that all of us are Edom. We all look down on others. If we're brutally honest with ourselves, all of us have prejudices, that lead us to feeling superior over someone. And I'm not only talking about racial prejudices. I'm talking about that one sketchy neighbor down the street whom you would never be seen talking to. You just don't associate with that kind. I'm talking about the refugee who can't speak English and so you assume that they're less intelligent and you talk down to them. I'm talking about the homeless man whom you pass by and you instinctively think, well, they put themselves there. Thank goodness I would never be in that position. When someone you don't like suffers, or to step on some toes, when something negative happens to a politician that you oppose, don't you feel in that moment just a sick little burst of pleasure? (laughs) Obadiah is warning you not to assume that you are immune from feelings of proud superiority. Arrogance leads to violence, but humility leads to peace. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be different, a community where we do not elevate ourselves above anybody, a place where we honor the dignity of all human beings made in the image of God. And the way that we rid ourselves of this pride is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which leads us to worship a humble God who served us. Jesus shows us the humility of God himself. He washed his disciples' feet. He served and even sought out the lowest in society. He went on a cross and he died for you and me. We have to ask ourselves, what if God thought about us in the way that we often think about others? What if he had kept his distance from those he thought were beneath him? But he didn't. The humility of Jesus disarms our arrogance. It levels the elevation differences that we try to construct. Paul wrote this in the letter to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just before those verses, 
Paul wrote how we should be changed by this. He said, what's the application for us? And it's this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So here's the practical implication, church. Be on guard anytime you notice yourself thinking, I'm better than that person. Do not let yourself go there. It is a desperately dangerous place for your heart to be. But the gospel of Jesus can rescue you from that trap of pride because we follow a God who identifies with the weakest, with the lowly, with us. So people of God, let us repent of any pride, superiority, or arrogance that lingers in our hearts, and let us pursue peace through humility. Let's go back to the big idea of Obadiah. Edom is toast for now. So we've seen the first part, the Edom is toast part, but now we're going to see an interesting turn as we come to the second half of the book. Will you read with me in verse 15? This is the crime and salvation of all nations. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Hold up. Wait a minute. Obadiah has been prophesying judgment against one specific nation, Edom, but now God broadens the vision to include all nations. What is he doing here? Let's read on. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So we still get references to Edom slash Esau. There's a promise of judgment on them like we saw in the first section, but the big shift here is that now God is directing his focus toward all prideful nations that act like Edom. And in verse 16, Obadiah uses the image of these nations drinking. They're, they slurp, they swallow, they consume other people with their greed and violence. One of the common prophetic images in the Bible of God's justice is a cup filled to the brim with wrath. And so here God promises that all arrogant nations will drink up the judgment they deserved. Almost like, oh, you like to consume other people? I'll give you something to consume. And we learned here that Edom was just an example. They were a parable of every nation in every time and place. Do not be proud. Do not treat the weak or the poor in an evil way. Do not gloat over the misery of others. Do not oppress God's people or God will bring you down. But remember what we learned in Daniel last week. The temptation for every nation and every empire is to think that they're the exception. <laughs> We're the empire that never ends. We're all powerful and immortal. In Genesis 5, there's this genealogy of the descendants of Adam and Eve. You read, this person lived and then he died. And that last part is the drumbeat emphasis as you read it. This person lived, and he died, and he died, and he died. And you go, whoa, okay. So every human being's life comes to an end. And the Bible says that the same is true on a national, 
global scale. I've got up there a picture, you can't really read it. Honestly, even if you zoom it up, you can't really read it. Um, but it's very, it's, it's a history of the world and all the world empires that we know about and when they began and when they end and kind of their influence in the world. From the Hittites to the Ming Dynasty to the Byzantines, to the Visigoths, to the Ottomans, to the Soviet Union, to yes, even to the United States, to whatever the future will bring. Every nation can have an Edomite sort of pride. Every civilization in history has preyed on the weak, has committed injustice and acts of violence, has pursued that old sin of Babel, of trying to make a name for themselves. It's what the psalmist lamented in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their corns for us. But this rebellion, this evil that's in every single nation that has ever existed, it will not stand forever. Obadiah promises that one day, the day of the Lord, will bring justice on all those who arrogantly plunder the vulnerable and oppress God's people. The justice of God will happen. God will bring it. And I think there may be some here who need to hear that this morning, those who have experienced great evil or injustice in their lives. Every little act of injustice, God sees it. Not one of those evils has been missed. This is a great comfort if you've ever been defrauded, cheated, betrayed by those you thought were closest to you. God sees that. And he promises that one day he will right the scales. The end of the wicked is certain. But as we look at these last few verses of Obadiah, we must remember this all-important principle whenever we're reading biblical prophecy. Judgment is never the end of the story. Can you say that with me? Judgment is never the end of the story. So we're going to read verse 19 here and go to the end of the book. Edom is toast for now. We're finally getting to the for now part. So let's read in verse 19. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, And those of the Shephelah shall possess the lands of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. All right, everything clear? My work is done? No, I'm just kidding. All these place names can get really confusing, but this is where a map is helpful. So I've got a map up there. So if you start from Jerusalem, all the places he names are north, south, east, or west. The Negev was in the south. Mount Esau and Gilead are in the east. Land of the Philistines in the west. Zarephath was in the north. You see the pattern there. He's creating a compass rose, starting from Jerusalem, and then describing how when the exiles return to their land, their borders will begin to expand outward and further in every direction. The exiles who now have no land, who lost their land, will one day possess All lands, the whole earth. And what's remarkable about some of the places he names is that he's naming some of Israel's worst enemies. 
as being included in this kingdom that's being described. So the Philistines, the Edomites, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, every single one of them will be brought into God's kingdom. And now it's natural for us to ask at this point, is this a literal promise? I mean, will the nation of Israel expand its borders, rule over every continent? I'm inclined to say no because of the very last line of the book. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Every human kingdom is like Edom, filled with pride and violence. And so the only hope we have is for a better kingdom to come, a kingdom that is ruled not by sinful human beings, but by God himself. We need a king who will not take advantage of the vulnerable, but who will take care of the vulnerable. We need a king who is not high and mighty, but who is a servant. We need a king who will love his enemies, even the enemies who killed him, and welcome them into his kingdom. We need Jesus, because this is the king that was promised in Obadiah. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, who began his ministry in this way. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee Proclaiming the gospel, that means good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Isn't it remarkable that the very first message that Jesus preached was pointing back to what Obadiah promised? He's saying, you know that kingdom that Obadiah talked about, one that would take over the whole world? It's here because I'm here. Turn from your evil ways. Believe in the good news that I bring. And that good news of the kingdom that he brought is that Jesus is the king who will bring justice on evil, but for all who turn to him, he is also the savior to rescue them. There's a small little detail in Obadiah that's easy to skip over. There are two references to Mount Zion. It's usually a metaphor for future Jerusalem, the coming kingdom of God. So in verse 17, we read, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. In verse 21, we read, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. What this is, is a promise that the salvation for all human beings, the beginning of the kingdom of God, would start in one particular spot, Jerusalem, and then spread outward to the whole world. And that's exactly what happens. In Jerusalem, Jesus, the king, he was coronated with a crown of thorns. He was given a bloody purple robe. And then he was crucified on a cross with a sign over him that said, the king of the Jews. And he was crucified. He allowed himself to die so that he could pay the just penalty for our sins, the punishment that we deserve for our arrogance and pride against others. And then he rose from the dead to defeat evil and death as the triumphant king over all things. So if you flip the page to the book of Acts, Jesus is risen. He's about to leave his disciples, and his disciples ask him, okay, Jesus, is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel. In other words, is now the time that Obadiah's promises about the kingdom of God will come true? And Jesus says, yes, but this kingdom isn't going to be like any other kingdom you've ever seen before. In my kingdom, you're not soldiers. You're not conquerors. 
your witnesses, your spreaders of good news in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts follows that trajectory. So now there was a revival in Jerusalem in chapter 2 of Acts. The very people who killed Jesus, now worshiping him and laying down their lives and saying, I follow King Jesus. And then from there, the gospel spreads north, south, and east, and west. And it continues to do so today. The gospel is expanding wildly. The church is growing in every area, especially in the global south. It's the reason why you and I are here this morning. We are citizens of a kingdom without borders, a kingdom of God that is within every kingdom of human beings, a kingdom that conquers not through the sword, not through power, but by the giving up of power in love and by the witnessing of good news, the good news of Jesus who saves. And then in the book of Revelation, we get a vision of how this story will end. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. It's just like Obadiah predicted one day the kingdom of God will include every people group from every time and place. And just consider the wild implications of this. It means that in the new heavens and the new earth, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to be worshiping next to an Edomite. You're going to be right there. You're going to have a Hittite and a Visigoth next to you, praising God. You're going to be singing to God in English while someone next to you sings to him in ancient Anglo-Saxon. It's wild to think about. The end of it all is nothing less than world peace. The gospel of God breaks down every barrier, every dividing wall, and he unites us all in the worship of our Savior, King Jesus. I want to close with a story about Jacob and Esau, the original people who caused this rift between Israel and Edom. Now, these two brothers were estranged for decades. The last conversation they had were death threats, promises of violence. This family had been divided by old wounds and arguments long in the past. Have you ever experienced that in your family? The wounds that go way, way back. We don't talk to that side of the family anymore. Well, finally, Jacob is told by God to go and reunite with his brother. And at that moment, Jacob just fully expects to die. He's like, okay, the last conversation I had with Esau is that he promised to kill me. So if I go to do what God said, that's going to happen. But when the moment came, this is what happened instead. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. I think there are many of us here who are in the midst of a long conflict for which you've given up all hope. Whether it's a family conflict like in Jacob and Esau, or it's a husband and wife 
who are just resigned at this point that this is the best it's ever going to get. Or it's a child who feels like their parent is never going to change and embrace them for who they are. Or a parent whose heart breaks for their child whose life is falling apart. Maybe it's a close friend who you see going down a dark path and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried, but they're still heading that way. Maybe you feel, my family is so messed up. This relationship will never get better. And we have to be honest and and say that it might. But the Bible does give us hope here. If Jacob and Esau can reconcile, if one day Israel and Edom will both be part of God's kingdom, if God can reconcile you to himself, then there is hope for every kind of conflict that we experience that that's not the end of the story, that there is hope for healing and restoration and peace. One day, all national, all generational, all relational, all marital, all familial conflict will be put to rest as Jesus makes all things new. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is if we truly believe that nothing is impossible with God, can he really heal some of the relationships that I'm in, the relationships that I just think they're done, they're broken forever, never gonna talk to that person again? Can God really reconcile us to the people who have hurt us and even to the people whom we have hurt? Now, as we've seen, the book of Obadiah is a book of judgment. There's no getting around that. It's a powerful proclamation of God's judgment against evil. There are stark warnings in here against the proud, against those who take advantage of others. And yet, Obadiah is also a beautiful promise that there will be a day when borders and boundaries will hold no power, when all prejudices will be unthinkable because the kingdom of God will unite every kind of person under his rule. And that kingdom has already begun here in the church and in the church worldwide. Where else but the church do you see babies and 80-year-olds? Where else do you see people who are married and single? Every kind of background from every kind of place, here is the place where we are all united Because Jesus has done that. He's broken down every kind of wall in his blood. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, you are citizens of the kingdom of God and you are witnesses of the rule of Savior King Jesus, the peacemaking king. The king who will bring peace, even in areas of conflict, you think will always be so. That is the hope of Obadiah. Let me pray for us. Father God, you know our stories. You know the background, the past of every person who is here. You know that each of us bears scars and wounds. You know that many of us have lost hope for certain people. And yet, Father, you also see that we have harmed others. We've caused scars and wounds on others. And we're sorry for that. By the blood of Jesus, by his resurrection, will you bring us hope? Will you help us to be peacemakers wherever we are 
in the name of our King Jesus. We pray it now in his name. Amen.